Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would do what work that you desire to do in us and through us. We pray that you remove all hindrances from that work. And so, may I be faithful to the preaching of your word. May we be faithful in the way in which we listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been preaching through the book of Genesis since the beginning of February, and so that's about nine months of going through the first book of the Bible. And hopefully in that journey, you've come away with an idea of the need for redemption from the fall and how God had set his redemptive plan in motion through Abraham and his descendants. And as I mentioned in one of my sermons, many major themes continue to occur, especially God's providence and his ability to bring about good purposes, even though his chosen people are deeply flawed in many ways. Today we're starting from a completely new portion of the Bible and we are zooming across to the New Testament to one of Paul's letters, specific, specifically the one that he wrote to the Ephesians. And while Genesis sets a foundation for the need for God's redemptive plan and the beginnings of that plan, Paul's letter to the Ephesians points to how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that redemptive plan and how we are to live in response to that. Now, before we dive into today's passage, let's have a quick look at the letter to the Ephesians. The city of Ephesus was located near modern-day Turkey, and it was a wealthy port city and a center of learning near key land routes. So not only was it a commercial hub, it was also in a strategic position to be a very influential place. It was also home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, and the people in Ephesus were also very caught up in magic, idolatry, and the supernatural. Paul had planted the church at Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and he spent three years living there, which is the longest time that he spent in any of his church plants, and later he would leave Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus. Now, the letter to the Ephesians is also one of Paul's prison letters, and so it's written towards the end of his life when he would face execution in Rome, according to traditional accounts. And unlike many of Paul's letters in the Bible, they are written uh, to respond to various threats and crises that the churches are facing, Paul doesn't address any particular problem in his letter to the Ephesians, and so that makes Ephesians one of the more positive letters written by him. And what the letter to the Ephesians contains is very foundational truths of the gospel of Jesus. And like what I mentioned earlier, how people are to live in response to these truths. And like many of Paul's letters, it starts with a greeting, it goes into thanksgiving and prayer in the first chapter, and now we come to chapter 2. Okay, so let's zoom into today's passage. But first, another Kevin and Hobbes comic. Uh, in this one, Kevin's been writing a letter to Santa claiming that he's been good this year, but he qualifies it with a lot of fine print. Uh, if you're not familiar with Kevin, he's not very consistent in being a good boy. So that's the, that's the joke. Uh, although the, the myth of Santa Claus isn't something that we really come across in Malaysia, the sentiment behind it is still there. And that is that we get rewarded for good behavior and we get punished 
for bad behavior. But this mindset cannot carry over to how we should expect God to always work. And that brings us to our big idea today. That God saves us by grace through faith in Christ for good works. Okay, so if you forget everything, this is the one thing to remember. That God saves us by grace through faith in Christ for good works. Now today's passage contains many foundational aspects of the gospel and my plea to you is that no matter how long you've been a Christian, never desensitize yourself to the good news of Jesus because it's central to how we understand and how we approach life while we are still on this side of heaven. It's relevant now. Now today's passage draws out a few contrasts and so I'd like to uh, look at some of these contrasts. Firstly, the contrast between Satan's rule and the rule of Christ. Paul is addressing the believers at Ephesus and verse 2 talks about how they used to follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now the world is the phrase that is used in the Bible to refer to the rest of humanity that doesn't follow Jesus and so this includes their beliefs, their value system, their purpose in life and so on. But what about the ruler of the kingdom of the air? The ruler of the kingdom of the air refers to Satan or the devil or the evil one or whatever you want to call him. And he is a ruler in the sense that he does have some sort of power over the world. And remember the world is people who don't follow Christ. 1 John chapter 5.19 tells us that the world is under the control of the evil one. So Satan does have some power but how he exercises his power is not so obvious. People are not getting possessed by him left and right every day. Rather, the devil is a deceiver and a tempter. And as long as the world, people who, who don't follow Christ, or as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, uh, those who are disobedient, you know, as long as those who belong to the world, those who are disobedient, uh, continue living in sin without turning back to God, then the influence and the power of Satan over their lives through sin is in effect. Or what is this kingdom of the air? The air represents the invisible space around us. And uh, one possible explanation of why Paul uses that word, the air, is because many people during that time believed that the lowest of the heavens was the atmosphere, the air, and that was where uh, evil spirits were found. But within the context of this passage, you can think of this air as you know, occupying the same time and the same space of this world as we know it. So the air is synonymous with the world. But before we start thinking that Satan is such a big deal, it's useful to know that just a couple of verses earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul states that Christ rules not just the world but also the heavenly realms. And the Greek word used for these heavenly realms is a completely different word from the word used for air. It is the word that is usually used when referred to heaven and, and God in heaven. And so Jesus is ruler over all the heavens both now, in the present age, as well as in the coming age. 
And so the limited rule of Satan over the world pales in comparison to the rule that Christ has together with believers as his body. Now, the language used in verse 6 talks about us being seated with him in the heavenly realms. And this is an imagery of being with Christ on his throne in heaven. Now this doesn't mean that we become divine or that we somehow get godly powers uh, that we have divine authority to speak things into existence. So this is not compatible with the, the false teaching of the Word of Faith movement, which many of these teachers on screen, uh, uh, they, they do teach, uh, where they say that you can declare things to happen. You speak it into existence as long as you have faith on God's behalf. Uh, but this is more about being seated in heaven with Christ uh, as co-heirs with Christ as his children and so our inheritance is a heavenly inheritance our identity is children of the only king citizens of heaven and so in that sense we are far above any power that Satan has over the world so what does this mean for believers it means that we no longer we are no longer under the rule of Satan the same way that the world is still under the rule of Satan. It means freedom. Freedom from slavery to sin. Believers are no longer unable to say no to sin. You know, either because we're ignorant that it's a sin or because we have no power to resist the temptation due to Satan's rule over the world. Believers now have the power to say no to sin. With the Holy Spirit in us, we can say no to sin. It also means freedom from being ruled by our sinful nature and its desires and thoughts. We were once slaves to our sinful nature, our constant inclination to sin. But now, although our sinful nature will always be with us during our journey in this fallen world, we don't have to be led by our sinful nature with its desires and thoughts. Instead, we can be led by the Spirit and what He desires. We also have freedom from fear of the spiritual realm. With God, the Holy Spirit living in every believer, we know that Satan and all his demons are completely under God's authority. And so if you've ever had a crippling fear of evil spirits, I invite you to consider this. If you believe that evil spirits are real, then you probably also believe that God is real. And if you believe in the God of the Bible, then everything in his word assures us that the devil is powerless against God. And if our life is hidden in Christ as disciples of Jesus, then what do we have to fear? And so this is why the first and most important step to any sort of spiritual warfare or deliverance ministry is always faith in Jesus Christ. So friends, we are free from the rule of Satan. But as Paul mentions in his letter to the Romans, we are slaves to Christ. And unlike being slaves to sin, uh, being a slave to Christ is a good thing. Now, let's pause for a moment to discuss and turn to somebody next to you or, or reflect on your own on this question. Which aspect of freedom in Christ do you appreciate the most? And for the children, what is your favorite thing about being a Christian? Okay, we will spend two minutes discussing this.
Okay, let's move on to the next contrast in today's passage. And that is the contrast between deserving wrath and receiving mercy. Now, the thing about original sin is the fact that every human being is born into spiritual death. And some might think that this is purely something inherited, that we're just victims of the choice that Adam and Eve made when they disobeyed God. But looking at the historical context of the letter to the Ephesians, many Jewish people also thought that Satan was responsible for making people sin, especially making the the non-Jews sin. But then that just turns us all into victims of Satan's schemes and God's judgment doesn't seem completely fair because there is no proof of intent. And any law student or lawyer will tell you uh, how important the element of intent is in any criminal case. But we are all accountable for our own sin. Now, firstly, none of us are born into faith in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes, Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. And so there is an almost inseparable relationship between faith and obedience in the Bible, and we'll examine this more later when we talk about works. But in our lack of faith, we are accountable for the sins that we commit. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul shows that even though Satan is the ruler of the unbelieving world, our sins are still the result of ourselves and our sinful nature, and this deserves God's wrath. And to em- emphasize this point, Paul shifts from the second person pronoun of you that he's been using to the first person pronoun of us to include himself. And if you remember from Philippians, he is Hebrew of Hebrews, as he claims. And so this means that not even Jews are exempt from God's wrath. And this is something that Paul uh, further expands into the later part of chapter 2. Our friends, holding ourselves accountable for our sins is the first step of salvation. Because without confession of sin, there can be no admission for our need for God and no repentance. But even though we are deserving of God's wrath for our sin and lack of faith, God is merciful. I want to draw your attention to three main components that are at work in how God saves us from death in in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 5. God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace. Firstly, God's love is the motive. It's what moves him to save us. Secondly, God's mercy is his character. It's it's simply part of who he is. And thirdly, God's grace is the method. It's how he saves us. Now, all these three components are important. But God's mercy is what allows for him to overlook the wrath that we rightly deserve and to allow the scales of justice to balance with the sacrifice of Jesus in our place instead of us. So friends, our God is a merciful God. And later when we come before him in the Lord's table, let's remember that he is a merciful God and thank him for that. Now the next contrast in our passage is the contrast between being dead in sin and being alive with Christ. And this is perhaps the main message of 
this passage that those in Christ are no longer dead, they are alive. There is an emphasis in this passage that believers are in a state of already dead in sin before they are raised up to life in Christ. And this doesn't just highlight our complete inability to influence our life to, to be alive in any way. It also means that spiritual death is not preventable and everyone is in need of salvation. And again, remember the context, even the Jews are in need of salvation. But what's the difference between being dead in sin and being alive with Christ? I'm asking this as a practical question because the Christian faith is more than just another religion with a different set of religious rituals, religious vocabulary, and religious rules. Think about it. Non-Christians can take on a Christian name. They can sing Christian songs. They can go to church. They can wear crosses. And none of them, none of that will make them a Christian. But let me just suggest to you two distinguishing factors that very clearly set Christians apart from non-Christians. And the first is the presence of a living relationship with God. Not just uh, a, a, vague, uh, a vague understanding of uh, a hypothetical God to build our lives around. Uh, not just an idea that, okay, just in case a God exists, let me behave a certain way. But no, a real relationship with a real and living God that expresses itself in sincere worship, sincere prayer, sincere service. So that's the first thing. A real living relationship with this living God. The second thing that sets Christians and non-Christians apart is a faith in God and His Word that affects our entire lives. And so our value system, our purpose in life, our motives for doing good, how we behave, those are all affected by the faith that we have in this God and His Word. And so friends, are these two things present in your life? A living relationship with God and a faith in Him that affects how you live. I implore you to think hard because there are only two groups of people that Paul is talking about in today's passage. You see, when Paul uses the dead and alive imagery, it's very black and white. You're either dead or you're not. Spiritually speaking, there's no half dead, there's no coma state. There's no spiritual in-between state. There is no room for fence-sitters in the kingdom of God. You're either still dead in sin or you're already alive in Christ. And so which group do you identify with? So I invite you to examine your life. Just look back at what makes up your life. And if you can find no spiritual difference from the rest of the world that remains spiritually dead, then only one of these spiritual states is a reality. You can't be dead and alive at the same time. Now let's take some time to reflect and discuss. What is one spiritual indicator that you are now alive with Christ? And for the kids, what makes you different from other kids who aren't Christian? Alright, let's discuss.
Let's move on to the last contrast I'd like us to look at in this passage. The contrast between being saved by good works and being saved for good works. Now, last week I mentioned John Wesley's doctrine of prevenient grace, which is a, a grace that comes before any sort of decision on our part. And I suspect that Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 to 9 would have played a very big part of why he taught this doctrine. Now, Paul doesn't only say that salvation is by grace, but he calls it a gift. And that's because by its very nature, you cannot earn a gift. If you can earn it, then it is no longer a gift. It is a reward. It is compensation. Uh, here's another Kelvin and Hobbes comic. Again, Kelvin is writing to Santa in order to get presents because he claims to be good. And you know, he, he actually isn't. Uh, but if he only gets a present only if he's good, then it's not really a gift, is it? It's a reward because gifts are not deserved. And so salvation is a gift of God, unearnable. But taking, receiving the gift still takes faith. Let me illustrate this. Imagine grace as orange juice poured out from a bottle that you can't reach. And you can't do anything to make the juice start flowing towards you or even to control the speed or amount of juice that's coming towards you. Uh, you but you still need to receive it or it will just spill all over the floor. And so faith is like holding out a cup to receive that orange juice of grace. And so no amount of work can bring us salvation, not even if we were better behaved than Calvin. But that doesn't mean that Christians don't have anything to do with good works. Because true life in Christ is inseparable from good works. There are a few passages in the Bible that talk about the relationship between the, the believer and works. And perhaps the most famous one is from James chapter 2, verse 14. And to just quickly sum it up, that section in James is talking about how works is proof and evidence of a person's faith. And now look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now remember that this is just one verse right after the verse that says that salvation is not by works. So even though works is not the cause of salvation, it should be the result of salvation. Paul calls God's uh, Paul calls us God's handiwork, the result of his work. And the, the, the Greek word for that is a, a creative sort of work. And so we are created, we are designed for good work in Christ. Without Christ, our good works have no spiritual value. And often they are in, insincere, they are full of ulterior motives. But with Christ, our good works are expressions of our faith and expressions of our obedience to God. Another reason why good works is so inseparable from the believer is because after we've been reconciled to right relationship with God, we're also meant to be reconciled to right relationship with our fellow men. And that expresses itself in good works. 
Oh, one last thing I want to highlight about these good works that we are designed for is that it needs to be a lifestyle. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the Greek word for live from the, the sin that we used to live in, and in verse 10, the Greek word for do from the, the good works that God has prepared for us to do, these two words share the same root word, which means to walk about, peripeta, uh, peripeta. The all right, which is uh, to 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 move about in a certain space, and so just as how we used to walk about in sin when we were dead in our sin, we are now to walk about in good works after becoming alive in Christ. And so, doing good works is not meant to be an occasional thing that we do every now and then, make ourselves feel good, or only when people are watching. Instead. Good works is to be a way of life for Christians, a space that we occupy regularly. And this Christian lifestyle of holiness and good works will be further elaborated by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 to 6. Now, let's take a moment to reflect and discuss. What is one thing you'll be doing for another this week? as a product of God's handiwork. And for the children, what is one good thing that you can do for someone this week? Let's discuss. In conclusion, know that God saves us by grace through faith in Christ for good works. The Christian faith does not operate on a reward-based system. Be thankful for God's gift of salvation. Be aware of how God has forgiven the sins that we are to be held accountable for. And 
do good works as part of the new life you have in Christ. Make it your lifestyle, not to earn any reward, but as a response to God's generous gift to us in the first place. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. I just want to give this opportunity to anyone who has not yet accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, or perhaps anyone who considered or thought that they were Christian, but discovered that they didn't have those key indicators of being spiritually alive in Christ, that they didn't have a living relationship with God, and they didn't have a faith that affected how they lived. If that is you, and you want to be sure about giving your life to Christ right now, would you take some time to look at this prayer on the screen right now? I'll just give you a few moments to read through, to understand, And if these words are words that you genuinely want to say to God, would you repeat them after me as your personal prayer to God? Dear God, I confess that I have sinned against you, knowingly and unknowingly. I am in need of your salvation. I know that no amount of my own effort can solve this problem for me. I put all my trust in you, believing that you died on the cross for my sins, and that by following you, I will be completely forgiven and restored to proper relationship with God to lead a new life of faith and obedience to you. Thank you for your love, mercy and grace that makes all this possible. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, my Lord. Amen. Now, if you have prayed this prayer recently, I want to encourage you to let somebody know. If you have any Christian friends or even in the chat, uh, just let somebody know about this decision and commitment that you have made. The Lord bless you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.